and welcome to Zero Net 50. I'm Jennifer Deloney and with me is Joel Stromberg. Hey, Joel. Hey, Jennifer. All right, so uh, you have a, a busy rundown to get us started today. So uh, I understand that you have some hearings that you wanted to talk a little bit about. I do. Um, Washington is back in full swing. Uh, both the House and Senate are off their Easter breaks and uh, are meeting. Uh, today on the House floor, there's going to be a debate on H.R. Uh, 9, um, which is the it's the first Democratic bill on climate um, that's being put forth this year. And what the bill does is it um, keeps Paris, it keeps the United States into the Paris uh, Climate Accord um, and also reiterates the fact that the United States will be meeting um, the targets that Obama had uh, voluntarily put in uh, just before he left office. It's pretty clear that all the Democrats are going to vote for this. Um, it's not as clear uh, whether it'll be any Republicans. So I think that's one thing that needs to be looked at um, after the vote, which takes place on Thursday, um, mm -hmm. the 2nd of May. Um, the other thing to look at in that for people that want to follow it is to, to check what their own member of Congress might have had to say on, uh, by way of a speech on the floor or an introduced statement into the Federal Register. Um, I think that if it does go down purely on uh, the basis of party affiliation, that shouldn't be looked at as that there are no Republicans in the House that really want to do something about this. I think that mm. what will happen is it's more party discipline uh, in this case. Right. One of the other things that happened, also kind of in, in consort with this bill, uh, the Democrats had uh, done their annual retreat um, during the recess period. <clears throat> and they started talking about themes and, and uh, what the Democrats would be putting forth uh, in advance of the 2020 elections. Uh, and it was clear that, the, that Pelosi and the House Democratic leadership um, want all the Democratic members um, to not really talk about the international aspects of the Paris Agreement as much as the economic benefits to the United States in terms of jobs and uh, new right. businesses and what have you. And this is, I mean, this is something of a, of a change, but I think it's a, it's a very good change. It's not, it's not to say that the United States isn't being connected uh, in other ways, but the leadership is convinced that the, the local arguments, I mean, what, is it, what does it mean to us in a positive way if, this, if the United States stays into the accord? And I think we're gonna see this theme clear, clearly being raised um, throughout all the legislation um, and hearings that will be coming up uh, for the rest of the year in Congress. This is, I think this is pretty much a set theme for them, um, and it's one that the progressives and the moderates um, absolutely agree on. The other, another committee hearing today, the select committee um, on the climate crisis actually met for a second time, uh, just, uh, I guess, on Monday. Um, and they've had a, uh, they, their witnesses that were brought in uh, really spoke more about the general, uh, in general, about what what the federal government should be doing. There was a lot of agreement on uh, spending for energy research and development, uh, some on renewables, and uh, the opposition was was modulated. Um, the the speaker from the Chamber of Commerce spoke of the new Chamber program, which I'd actually written on, uh, I guess, last week about. Uh, the, the Chamber of Commerce now kind of stepping full force 
um, by admitting that climate change is real and suggesting that the federal government do something about it. Um, their phrase was uh, inaction is no longer uh, acceptable. The problem with the chamber um, is I think is the same thing that uh, is the same problem that we're seeing with the Republicans that they're, they're willing to admit to climate change, but their solutions are, are 15 years ago. I mean, we always right. need more research and what have you, but, right. and it used to be that when, when opponents of climate change would come into power, say the, the Reagan or the Bush administrations, they, it would all go back to the, to the default position of, well, let's, let's support research. Um, and whereas we need research, it's just, it's not enough. It's not even mm -hmm. close to being enough. And I think what we've seen in the select committee is, um, is the traditional arguments coming out. The, the committee, of course, can't do its own legislation, um, but it is going to be a fact-finding uh, event. And I think that uh, it's something that should be followed in a general sense. It's clear that the select committee is not going to be um, a leader as far as the House is concerned. Right. Um, the other thing, another hearing came up on the House Oversight uh, and Reform Subcommittee on Environment, um, and it too saw the usual split between uh, Republicans and Democrats. This hearing, I think, was notable because one of the uh, witnesses was uh, Caleb Rossiter, who is the executive director of the CO2 coalition uh, that is out of Princeton University. The CO2 coalition um, is a very conservative uh, group and in fact has been set up, uh, was started by William Happer. Um, Happer, for those who've never heard his name, um, is, a Princeton, uh, is a Princeton professor um, and has also been the one that the White House had asked um, to set up this internal panel, uh, which would be the adversarial review of climate science. Um, Rossiter is, is, is Happer's man, if you will. And in fact, this week, actually today, Trump is actually meeting with a number of uh, advisors on that very topic about how to um, create this kind of internal panel uh, that they would like to use to counter um, a lot of the scientific arguments in general uh, over climate change and actually to counter the national climate assessment um, of this required every four years from the administration. The Trump administration actually was responsible for, the, for this last assessment, the fourth assessment, um, which validated everything that the UN science uh, committees and environmental committees are saying about climate change. Um, and this is something that rather than come going against the um, conclusions of the national climate assessment uh, in a straight on kind of frontal approach, what What's being recommended is creating this internal group um, that, that has scientists after everybody's name, um, but says that CO2, for example, is good for, for the planet because it increases the greenness of vegetables or something. Right. Right. Um, and and, and there's, a, there's a split going on in, in a somewhat odd split. Um, Larry Kudlow, um, who used to be the Fox commentator and is now um, one, of the, one of Trump's closest aides, is actually against doing this, um, whereas others in the uh, uh, administration are uh, in favor of it. This is, it, it parallels somewhat the Pruitt uh, exercise that he tried to get in the red-blue uh, debate teams as to what climate change is going on. Right, right. My, my guess is that, actually, I don't have a guess on this. The military 
a lot of the a lot of the panel's um, objectives would be to look um, through a security a, a national security lens, and the military, I mean, is absolutely um, lockstep with the rest of the world as far as climate change is concerned. So they're not they're they're going to have a problem should this advisory committee go through. On the other side, EPA would like to see Wheeler um, would like to see this happen just because it'll give him some way to. Um, validate, if you will, the uh, the less stringent um, replacement of the clean power plan, um, and ultimately perhaps in, uh, to challenge the endangerment finding. Um, mm-hmm. It'll be interesting to see what what comes out of this. The other thing that happened this week and just yesterday, um, House Speaker Pelosi and the Minority Leader of the Senate uh, Schumer met with Trump about infrastructure. And infrastructure is one of those areas where people are believing that bipartisanship actually has some possibility um, of accomplishing something this year. I have my doubts. Um, one of the things, it, this, this almost seemed to be a repeat of the, uh, of the earlier uh, meeting that Schumer and Pelosi had with Trump on um, budgets and immigration, where he didn't invite any Republicans to the to the party, um, so what happened was that uh, after the after the meeting, Schumer and Pelosi uh, did a, a little press thing outside of the White House that indicated that they and the president were in agreement that uh, a two trillion dollar infrastructure bill uh, would be a good thing to try to pass this year. Um, oh, even before Pelosi and Schumer got back to the Hill, um, Republicans, especially in the Senate, were saying this this just isn't going to happen. I mean. Where do you get the two million, two trillion dollars? Right. And this was something that was not discussed um, by Schumer and Pelosi and Trump. Uh, they've agreed to meet three weeks hence um, to talk about the financing. But I think what's going to happen, and again, if you remember the the they walked out in an agreement um, after meeting with Trump, saying that the uh, the funding was going to be fine, and then we had what what amounted to the longest uh, dead time between. Right. Uh, you know the federal government, so yeah. I, I think this is going to see the same the same sort of thing. Uh, it also it's not just the money in this case; um, it's also in in approach. I mean, as long as climate is important to the Democrats, they're going to want this in their infrastructure bill, and it's real unclear as to as to what Trump is going to accept. Mm-hmm. They also walked out of that meeting saying that possible funding could include a ga- uh, an additional tax on gasoline, um, and it's going to get it's going to get very complicated. Trump actually has come out. It was a while ago, but he he seemed to be responsive to the suggestion of a gas tax to to pay for infrastructure. But it's it, it's it's unclear what his position is now. The other thing that's real real clear about this is that the Democrats don't want to see um, an infrastructure project or an infrastructure bill paid for. Um, primarily through tax incentives and private sector investment. And one of the reasons that this is important, not just in the infrastructure sense, but also in um, the Green New Deal or, or, or in the sense of a national uh, Green New Deal, whatever its composition is, uh, the progressives, uh, Ocasio-Cortez and, and um, the groups like Justice Democrats uh, and others, don't really want to, they don't want to see the private sector being the moving force um, because of their financing of uh, a Green New Deal. Uh, 
it's real clear that that the public-private partnership concept is. I don't want to say it's at risk. What it is is it's it's in the process of being reformed, and we don't know exactly how that's going to come out. Uh, it also comes up. Uh, Beto O'Rourke uh, came out with his own version of a Green New Deal, which is a 1.5 trillion dollar proposal. Like a lot of the proposals, it doesn't have a lot of depth to it yet, but it's clear that he's looking to fund it through a similar kind of public-private. Uh, partnership arrangement. Um, he's he's also responsive to uh, carbon taxes uh, as well. And what we've seen already is that the Ocasio Cortez and, and the more progressive members uh, of the Hill uh, in the House are not going to accept this kind of heavy reliance on the private sector. So, mm-hmm. um, what happens on the infrastructure argument is going to have it's going to bear some relation to what happens ultimately on on whatever the, the Green New Deal is that they, that either gets discussed or passed. Um, the other thing that came up, which I think is going to be a real leading uh, issue, is the disaster assistance. Uh, the bill now um, that would provide aid to Puerto Rico and Texas and all the, and, and the Midwestern states, um, all the ones that have been affected by hurricanes uh, over the last 18 months, is now jammed up uh, in the Senate. And the sticking point is, uh, Puerto Rico. Um, mm. the, the, this is going to become increasingly more of a problem. I mean, it, it's clear that disasters are going to become more frequent and probably more intense. Yeah. Um, and I think that what happens here is that the disaster, disasters, the, the debate about disasters, the, um, the payment um, for the consequences of disasters are really going to become a surrogate uh, in general for climate change. I and mean, this mm-hmm. is this impacts people locally. And as we've seen in the most recent polls, um, one of the reasons that the, the, the um, focus of voters, uh, the increasing focus and placement of, a, of the first or second priority on their list um, has to do with climate change is because they're all feeling the impacts of disasters. It, it's mm-hmm. becoming a reality. And yeah. at some point, it's going to be cheaper to try to do something about climate change than it is to be uh, continually paying uh, for the damage done to towns, cities, and rural areas. And this is something else that, that we're seeing here, that um, farmers, uh, it's not just Puerto Rico that's hurting for money. I mean, Texas and all, and all these other states, but a number of Midwestern states are being have been hit by disasters, are now waiting for um, the assistance that they need to kind of come back from the disaster. But for farmers in the Midwest, they've got a double whammy here because what happened, what's happened with Trump's um, tariff issues in international trade is that the markets in China have been closed off to the, to the U.S. agriculture uh, industry, especially to the family farms um, or the, the non-industrial farm sorts of things. The same thing goes on with you know, the negotiations going over the replacement for NAFTA. And so what we're what what's happening now is that I think that you're going to see in the in the Midwest the agricultural interests um, are being hit so hard by the 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 by by the um, uh, the trouble in getting bills the partisanship in in the House and Senate and Trump's uh, international trade policies I think this is going to begin to swing them over um, to be more publicly um, 
to be advocating in public the need to do something about not just disasters, but about doing something about the, the problem itself, which of course is climate change. And who better than people that live off the land to be able to speak to what the consequences of a warming climate, um, of the loss of bees, of the, of the increased uh, number of floods uh, and what have you. So I think that this is something that's gonna really change the dynamic um, quickly. I mean, I don't think we're talking years away. I think we're talking months away. Um, yeah. I mean, people are actually hurting and they're gonna vote their hurt, believe me. Yeah. Um, yeah. We're seeing some of that uh, at our Southern border too. We've got farmers south of the border, their land that they used to be farming is now completely dried up as a result of climate change. They can't make a living, so they are headed where? To to our border to come as refugees. And so they're also feeling the difference because the U.S. is cutting off assistance to them. That's so right. by cutting off assistance, we're making it difficult for them, so they're coming back up to our borders. And it's this vicious cycle that Trump doesn't see. That, that's exactly right. I mean, it's, I mean, his cutting off aid, for example, um, to El Salvador and Honduras is exactly the opposite of what's needed. I mean, right. what, what's needed is opportunities um, in these countries, and it's not happening that way. We're going to see a migration, though, I think, from the agricultural sector into urban areas. Um, I mean, this is the these impacts are visible and, and felt by people, and I think mm -hmm. that it only goes... It only goes up from here as far as um, how voters um, treat climate change um, when it comes when it actually comes time to vote, um, and it certainly is changing the attitude of a lot of the uh, Republicans or the traditional deniers. I, I'm not suggesting that all Republicans are deniers, but right. but most of the opposition comes from those quarters, at least here in Washington. Um, mm -hmm. It's going to be hard to it's going to be hard to ignore. Um, these kinds of massive movements of, of people and uh, uh, and industry. I mean, pretty soon that you know the as as warming takes over, um, it's no longer Missouri that's the place where you grow crops or Kentucky. You have to go you know go to the Dakotas and ultimately up into up into Canada. I mean, this is causing right. a great migration. Yeah, huge difference. Well, you also heard a little something that. I think you had said might be the death knell for the Green New Deal. Tell me what you said. Exactly, actually, that's exactly what I said. Um, James Hansen, um, who is, uh, he's a NASA scientist that um, in 1988 or something um, came out with a, a major statement that climate change is real. And um, he was, uh, he was basically kind of hounded out of the government for it. Um, mm -hmm. And, and, is clearly, the, I mean, one of the top five most eminent uh, climate scientists in the world um, came out with a new deal and said, look, at this This just is not going to work. This is not what the United States needs to be able to combat climate change. And I think I mean, what he was pointing to was the fact that it's that you can't you can't make one piece of legislation the answer to all of society's ills. And I mean, yeah. he basically was reflecting what it is that, um, you know, other detractors of the, of the GND uh, have been saying. In Hansen's case, I mean, as you know, I, I follow the legal cases um, 
that go on on uh, climate related legal cases and and whether it's the juliana case of the of the young plaintiffs you know as, claiming that it's a, their constitutional right to have rural environment um or a, a trial against exxon um for, for what they knew and what they didn't do about climate change 20 years ago hansen is on the witness stand i mean I, every time i turn a page um in a new case uh, and look at the witnesses for the for the plaintiffs. It's Hansen, um, and his writings are everywhere. And I, I can't imagine how the um, organizations like the Sunshine Movement and Justice Democrats um, are going to counter what it is that he said. I mean, he said what he said. He's he's yeah. he has such a stature that it's going to be hard to argue with him. Number one, right. uh, and number two, uh, they have to worry about. Um, somebody of Hansen's stature saying, hey, look, we have to figure this out differently. Um, if they keep pushing on that, they're going to they're gonna lose their lever. Um, and so I think that this is something, I haven't heard any response from them yet, uh, from to Hansen's statement by, uh, by the progressives. I'm sure it's there. I do think that the fact that Ocasio-Cortez has not actually um, hit, hit the, 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 the tweetery um, on this indicates that, you know, she's, She's understanding that, in fact, this has to be played more, climate change has to be played in a more traditional manner um, than trying to do this kind of massive frontal assault and getting everything under one piece of legislation. Um, on the Senate side, uh, almost to the, to the other side, Lindsey Graham um, the, came out and actually kind of chastised the Republicans. His, his exact quote of climate change is this, Let's just cross the Rubicon. Let's, as a party, say the Green New Deal sucks, but climate change is real. Right. Um, and, and I think therein lies what the theme of Republicans are going to be um, now, from this day forward and, and into the 2020 elections. Now, whether or not that's what Trump has to say, um, I have my doubts, but I do see this as a way that um, Republicans are going to be willing to at least talk about some things. Again, mm -hmm. I think we're, we're there going to stop. Graham is in favor of, a, or at least he's indicated his favorability towards a, a carbon tax. And I think the thing to watch for is that, again, not, it, it's great that, that a lot of these denier groups are stepping up and saying climate change is real. It's not so great that they want to, uh, that they put their, their might, their political might behind um, uh, strategies that are 15 years old and just right. impossible to to keep up with with the challenge that we have now. Right. Well, it just it seems like you know what he what he said is it, it's that classic attempt to control the narrative. It's like, all right, well, we don't want what the Democrats are saying to run away from us. So if we can, it's like telling uh, a little bit of truth when you're telling a lie, and people will will believe you. It's, that's it's right. A I, powerful I think, approach. Right. It is. Yeah. I mean, I think that you phrased that exactly right. They're trying to control the narrative on this, mm -hmm. and um, we'll see how how sophisticated the voters are. Um, I rather think that uh, they're going to be a lot more sophisticated than than the Republicans are giving them credit for. Again, because of what's happening actually um, in the in their cities, counties, and, and congressional districts um, that that are causing people to feel personally. Uh, harmed by climate change. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, it's that that local level that I want to talk about a little bit more today. Uh, but 
in order to talk about it, we have to blow up to the international policy level because the the two are so completely connected that we can't talk about one without the other. Um, we talked a little bit on our last podcast about global level policymaking and what we need to be thinking about in terms of global policy on climate change. So I want to take just a quick jaunt through that. Um, when we think about climate change policymaking on a global scale, I've been thinking about who is in control of that system. How, how do they come together and how are they making decisions? How do they consult with those not in positions of power in that structure? And what kind of sway do those without power have? Now, those are some critical questions that we all have to be asking. And when we understand the answers to those questions, I think we can see the chinks in our global community's armor and identify what could be adjusted to fast forward global progress on climate change. The reality is nations are the only policymakers at the global level. We call it international policy for a reason. And the United Nations is at the center of that system and they have complete control. The United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change is the foundation of the Paris Agreement. And, and also nations are the foundation of the Paris Agreement. But we're seeing that nation-centric nature of global policy failing in terms of environmental goals. The United States is the shining example of that failure. Trump's pullout announcement and the subsequent pullback from Paris Agreement-related activity has put the onus on subnationals to try to have some sway in a global policy framework that has never given them a seat at the table. So, you know, they want to come to the nations and say, we want to participate at your level. But of course, you know, how do you convince someone in power to give up a little bit of their power? It's, it's almost impossible, right? It is. Yeah. Yeah. People cling so, to it. Yeah, people do. And so what we're seeing more and more is that climate change and the push for policies to mitigate its effects and slow its progress are catalysts for change in the structure of that uh, international policymaking. And we can see this shift beginning to happen by looking at the movement from cities to have a greater say in climate change policy. I mean, the dynamics of cities in relation to climate change has put them at the forefront of the environmental movement. The stats here are, are astonishing. So cities hold more than half of the world's population. Cities produce about 80% of global GDP. Some cities have economies that are bigger than some G20 nations, which is astonishing. Uh, over 90% of urban areas are coastal, so that's putting those areas at risk of flooding from rising sea levels and ever more powerful storms. And larger cities consume about two-thirds of the world's energy and create more than 70% of global CO2 emissions. But those, you know, those stats about 90% of urban areas being coastal and those areas being affected by climate change, you know, it sort of ties back to what you're saying about the the center of the U.S. and and the agricultural communities. They're being affected as well. Uh, they are, and and um, and severely. I mean, we're we're talking about people's livelihoods, and I think that what we're going to see um, increasingly, for example. Uh, Urban farming um, and vertical farming and what have you is 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 in some ways becoming a reality. And I think that um, I mean what's happening is that it's hard for it's it's hard for the family farms 
to stay. Um, and what we're going to what we're going to see is industrial farming becoming greater, but we're also going to be seeing movements of populations now. Whether whether they move back to the Midwest in an urban or, or rural um, kind of scenario is, mm-hmm. is something else again. Um, but I think also that because it's affecting the agricultural industry um, and the middle, I mean, here in the United States, in the middle states, um, we're going to see an expansion of, uh, the, of the populace, of, of, pop, of popular concerns um, mm-hmm. over the impacts of, of climate change. It also points out, I mean, the, the UN conference in Poland um, this, this last summer, I guess it was in, in the wintertime, um, I mean, showed that just the, the split that you were talking about, I mean, the mm-hmm. cities have a much different attitude than the nationals um, do. But it also shows you the, the need um, and it begins to outline the role that fed, the federal governments need to play as well. And mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that I mean, nobody can do it on their own. I mean, the, right. we saw a lot of a lot of discussion about well, the cities acting in consort can actually meet um, the the targets that that uh, the U.S. targets that were proposed uh, under the Paris Accord, right. which is great, but it's not enough. Um, right. And they can't do, they cannot do on their own. Uh, only what can be done in consort with the federal government as well. And ultimately between governments, nation governments. Um, And so hopefully what will happen is that they'll begin to find ways as as people become more affected or believe themselves to be more affected um, by climate change that we're going to find a way to actually bring um, the nationals and the the local areas uh, together. Um, But as you know, as as Tip O'Neill once said, and has been repeated a gazillion times since then, all politics are local. And I think that uh, I think what's happening is that we're establishing a very strong um, local basis uh, for action that is going to become bubbling up. Uh, yep. The problem, of course, is that nobody. We talk in these in these massive amounts. I mean, you know, if let's change the world under the Green New Deal. No, let's just have carbon taxation. No, mm-hmm. let's just do research. You can't do this in a siloed manner. You have to be able to integrate uh, actions across the various sectors. And I think what what the world is lacking, um, certainly the United States is lacking, uh, is a picture of what it is that we're trying to build. I mean, we're, right. Right. people are are throwing blocks at things, and but they don't they don't know what the construction is going to actually look like. And I think that at some point, somebody is going to have to take a step back and kind of cast um, the overall context in which uh, things need to get done and should should be done. Because if we just do this kind of laissez-faire, you do what you want, I'll do what I want. Yeah. 20 years ago, that was a great idea. Um, mm-hmm. It's just not now because we don't, I mean, the only way we're going to get the critical mass of action that, that holds any hope really of being able to keep uh, temperatures within some kind of reasonable bounds is if everybody starts pulling in the same direction. Absolutely. Well, I think cities are well positioned uh, to to be leaders in that respect to create that picture, and that's that's what they're doing. But in that siloed effect right now, uh, they've become some of the loudest voices for progress, uh, and they're good good role models. We saw just in April, London put in place its ultra low emission zone, 
drivers mm-hmm. with cars that don't meet certain emission standards are going to pay £12.50 per day to drive there. Whoa. And that over a month is going to stack up for those lorries with their stinky uh, you know, emissions. Mm-hmm. And that's an unprecedented policy. It's one that city leaders put in place independent of international policy. Uh, according to C40, which is a coalition of cities, 27 cities have pledged to create similar zones or no emission low low or no emission zones in their city centers by 2030 so over the next five or ten years we're going to see cities step up in that respect on their own but they could begin to put together a picture of what cities across the world should look like Um, california their cities they started to demand uh all new residential buildings in their jurisdictions include solar PV, San Francisco and Santa Monica among them. And then the state followed their lead last May by adopting an efficiency standard requiring new homes in the state to have solar PV systems starting next year. You know, so the cities stood up and said, this is what we think should be happening here. And then someone at a higher level uh, followed suit, which I think is going to happen uh, in greater uh, effects in the coming years, um, cities have recognized that they're they're responsible to their citizens and a healthy climate because they're closer to their citizens. Well, that, that's right. I mean, the, the leaders of cities are going to get called at three o'clock in the morning wanting right. somebody wanting wanting them to do something, and that doesn't yes. really happen here in Washington. Right, and people show up to their council meetings and they get in their face and they stand there at their little microphones and they talk right to them. You know, that kind of local uh, input makes a big difference. <clears throat> but in terms of the the global picture, you know, cities are really stepping up in a big way. And it's fascinating to see what they're doing. Uh, the Urban 20 was launched at the end of 2017 by the mayor of Buenos Aires and the mayor of Paris. Uh, and it brings together uh, cities of the G20 member states to discuss discuss global issues. Uh, remember that previous stat I said, some cities have economies that are bigger than G20 nations. Um, and at the first Urban 20 Mayor Summit last October, the Urban 20 members made an urgent plea to the G20 members to work with cities on climate issues specifically. I mean, they focused, laser focused on that. Uh, Some of their recommendations were pretty clear, uh, but they represent 34 cities that are home to like a billion, uh, yeah, a billion and a half people. Uh, The world population is estimated at about 7.7 billion. So that's a huge chunk of our global population. Uh, and one statistic says estimates there are about uh, four and a half thousand cities in the world with a population over 150,000. You know, really? so that 30, that 34 is only a tiny chunk of yeah. that. But you know, that's a lot of cities to come together and have a voice if they want to. Um, and I, it, in that 20 of the urban 20, only two of those are. U.S. based. There's Houston and Los Angeles. Hmm. Uh, it seems that you know even a band of all major U.S. cities couldn't hold sway over the Trump administration's environmental agenda, such as it is. Uh, but th- that band would have to have formal power in international policy making to affect climate action in the U.S. Well, um, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say. I mean, that's right. And, and one of the things that I mean. Uh, 
one of the things that, that could happen and probably will happen is as as large cities become major actors, they're going to pass legislation um, controlling pollution or the or the um, or the ownership of uh, cars with internal combustion engines and what have you. Mm-hmm. And they're going to create a market. The same thing goes out. Just look at California, for example, in the auto emissions case. I mean, first right. of all, California is like the sixth or seventh largest economy right. in the right. world. Yes. Okay. Second of all, when they, when they have a standard that's more strident than the federal standard, then the automakers have a choice to make. Do you want to make two cars or do you want to make one car that you can also sell in California and every place else in the world? And so what happens is you, if these cities get together and create a market, uh, some kind of a unified market that uh, takes into consideration climate change and puts in place you know, various regulations or, or um, requirements for the sale of whatever, washing machines, refrigerators, cars, I don't care what it is, all of it. Um, then what's going to happen is that they can drive, they can drive the change within industries because industries do not do well when they have to make seven different products for seven different markets. Um, And at some point, this is all going to come together. And as it comes together, what happens is it forces the federal, it forces federal governments to have to move in that direction. One of the reasons that that the Trump administration doesn't want to continue the um, way to give California the waiver to set a more strident standard is because they know that it will drive the rest of the country and offset their promises to deregulate the auto industry. Um, yeah. and, and so this is a dynamic that's unfolding. Obviously, the question becomes, can they do it fast enough yeah. um, to, to make a difference? Um, yeah. Make a difference in the sense that, you know, there's a threshold there somewhere. I, and I, my belief personally is that we kind of hoist ourselves on our own petards when we start talking about 1.5 degrees or 2.0 uh, degrees with certainty. Um, mm-hmm. It, it tends to dissuade people from even trying. Um, right. So uh, to my way of thinking, whatever gets done is better than not doing anything. Yeah. Well, we see activity from the Urban 20. It's mostly a lot of uh, summits and people getting together to talk, but they're building their power base. We right. see yes, some other city networks working too, uh, like the United Cities and local governments and the Global Parliament, Parliament of Mayors. So there's a lot of activity there, and I encourage our listeners to watch those organizations carefully. Watch as they build their power and and what it is that they're trying to do um, so that we can begin to understand where cities and other subnationals are are growing and and see where where they're going to get from here. So that pretty much is is the bottom line of what I wanted to talk about in terms of cities and international policy. But uh, I do want to jump in and come back to what it is that you are keeping your eye on and what's coming up next week. You you mentioned something that's sort of near and dear to my heart uh, about the issue with recycling and what's going on with China. Uh, exactly. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm in the process of writing a piece called Trash Talk. Mm-hmm. Um, and what it's about is the fact that China, uh, for example, has now refusing uh, refuse from other countries for recycling. Um, And the other thing that we're seeing here in the United States is local communities. My own community here in Arlington, Virginia, 
um, just sent out a notice that they will no longer recycle glass. Um, yeah. And so that's going to end up where? In the landfills. Um, right. And I think this can become increasingly a problem throughout the United States, actually throughout the world. It's, I mean, the oceans we know are, are, are loaded with crap. Um, and pretty soon, it's if you can't ship it anywhere, communities are going to be the same thing. And I think what will happen, again, this is a local impact issue, um, one that I think too often flies under the radar uh, as far as policymakers are concerned. Uh, there, there's no longer going to be an easy answer to where do we send our garbage. Um, and it's expensive at the local level. Um, I mean, land, for example, is, is very expensive at urban in urban settings, uh, as a dump, it's probably not the best place to put your money. Uh, rural communities are going to end up resisting uh, taking the trash from from urban areas. And I think yep. that uh, again, as 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 the impacts of climate change filter down um, to the local level, um, what we're going to see is uh, a groundswell back up again. And uh, obviously. For all of us, and you know, who advocate for doing something about climate change, that kind of dynamic couldn't come fast enough. The other thing I want to, I'm going to be writing on the disaster, um, on disasters and their impact, uh, not just on uh, on local communities, but how the federal governments are going to have to begin to respond. And at some point, it's going to be cheaper to actually do something about climate change um, than it is to keep paying to rebuild houses in places that get blown up. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it'll also change some of the other things. I mean, you know, in the United States, we still we still subsidize floodplain insurance so that, you know, a community gets wiped away and then they rebuild it in the same spot and they're amazed that it's going to get wiped away again. Right. Um, and so this has to change. I mean, this is, you know, land use um, and accepting reality. So see, you'll see something else uh, from me on uh, disasters. And in that vein, I think, too, that I've been working on a piece about how insurance companies um, are going to be reacting. I mean, ultimately, they're the ones that pay the price. Uh, we've seen some indications where insurance companies are now trying to hold government responsible um, for the same reason the governments are suing Exxon. <clears throat> Their position is you knew, you knew about climate change for years and you haven't done anything about it. Um, what's happening to us is that we're being forced to pay for all these damages. Um, and they're going to look to share the responsibility. Whether that wins or not isn't really the issue. The fact is that insurance is going to become very, very expensive um, mm -hmm. uh, in high-risk areas, uh, which are increasing in number because of climate change. Um, and that, too, is going to force change. I mean, it's, it's very expensive to keep paying your insurance bill. And these bills are going to keep going up and up and up. At some point, there's going to be a pushback from government saying, well, you can't keep charging that. And their response is going to be, well, then you've got to do something about the problem. So look for those three things in the next 10 days and uh, we'll catch you on the upside. Yeah. And that's at civilnotion.com, right? Yes, ma'am. It is. Okay. Wonderful. All right. Well, I look forward to it. I guess uh, here we are. It's time to wrap up this episode. Uh, thank you, Joel, for your interesting take on what's happening in Washington and thereabouts. Thank you, Jennifer, for humoring yep. me. Okay, and uh, thank you to our listeners for joining us. You can tweet questions or comments to us at hashtag zero net 50 and have a great day.